tout est un faux Et Peut-être de faux Peut-être de faux Hello, and welcome to With Open Mouths, the podcast. I'm your host, Kanita Lilla. This podcast runs alongside Agnes's exhibition of the same name. The exhibition interrogates conventional museum practices. It asks if objects that originate outside Western knowledge-making systems, like those from Africa, can find their voices in new ways. I sit down with musicians, artists, curators, and spoken word poets to discuss the expression of their artistic practice and to find out what inspires them and to open their mouths and to be heard. Put on display, taught a new language, distorted our face, what a shame. We were shining, they wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves. I come from Cape Town, South Africa. I come from people who have been named colored, which is the term used for the generations of mixed race people, the laboring classes of African, indigenous and Asian origin, the descendants of slaves brought to the Cape Colony from Asia and the rest of Africa from 1653 until 1822 by the Dutch and the British. Our existence is testament to a conundrum of the apartheid state and to the white settler colonials before them. Because of the great range of our physical characteristics, our skin color, hair texture, and our bodies, our existence shows that race as defined by your physical characteristics alone is a baseless measurement that does not account for the mind or for the heart. But history has shown that race carries the power to affect your existence in unimaginable ways. I am a new resident in Katarokwe and have been here for just over a month. I'm still learning and only starting to understand the complexities of the history of this place. But a good place to start is to acknowledge that the Agnes at Queen's University is situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. For me, the gesture to acknowledge the original inhabitants of this land is personal. I understand that a statement is nowhere near enough to account for a history of broken promises and trauma to generations of indigenous people, but it is a first step gesture of recognizing a history and also a people. Hopefully it is the start of a deeper, more long lasting reconciliation. I've come to Canada as an uninvited guest on a work permit with my family to learn more about brutalized, hidden, forgotten and misplaced histories. I wish to care for the powerful land collection of art and to share my knowledge about similar collections in vastly different environments. I also wish to learn from artists about the ways they find their voice, their vision, and to learn what has made them brave enough to do so in a hostile setting. As a new resident, I'm grateful to be able to live, learn, earn a living, and contribute my knowledge in this beautiful and fractured place. It is my hope that the creativity, the good faith, and the will to do the hard emotional work among Kingston residents and among professionals at the Agnes, who I've worked with remotely for over the last year, can help recalibrate this place on a new path. In South Africa, settler occupation and apartheid ended more than 25 years ago. I know that reconciliation is not a simple endeavor with an easy solution, but a first step 
is to open our hearts, bear our truths, and to recognize a common humanity that has long been denied to many of the people of this land. The show at the Agnes called with open mouths includes traditional West African masks, face coverings, hoods, helmets, and crests from the land collection of African art and contemporary works by Nigerian artist Oluche. While this is a show about objects from Africa and contemporary art from the diaspora, it is also about the art museum. I see the art museum as a divided space made up of the seen and of the unseen. If we think of the museum as a body, then the scene is its visible head. It is the exhibition space where people encounter museum objects through the lens of curators. This is how objects from Africa become African art, handling and interpreting objects, the presence of glass cases, tomb style labeling, standardized accession numbering and didactic panels all reinforce particular storytelling processes. This is the space where the technologies of display grind cohesively to present a curatorial vision. But the unseen lies hidden within the bowels of the museum. It is the subterraneous underbelly, the closet with the skeletons. For traditional collections like the Lang Collection, this place is the heart of the museum. It is where objects sleep and where they live in a suspended dream world. In this sphere, the seamless narratives and explanatory tools of the world of the scene hold no currency. These archives and vaults tell a different and truer story. In this episode, we visit the Agnes's vaults with collection manager Jen Nickel, who describes her role at the Agnes and how it has evolved during her tenure, no longer confined only with a physical care of objects. For Jen, Care now includes broader community-related issues that extends to opening up the vault to different audiences, as well as to different understandings of the definitions of the objects themselves. The traditional masks from the Lang Collection are collections whose intended purposes have been distorted through their displacement into an art museum. They are not art objects in the Western sense at all, but rather they point to expansive cosmologies that expands beyond the walls of the art museum. But the fact that they are now contained at the Agnes interests me for many reasons. I've been interested in the art museum since my first visit as a high school student in 1992. In this episode, I start with a personal narrative describing my first introduction to Cape Town's premium art museum, the South African National Gallery. Embedded in the colonial history of the city, that art museum in 1992 was very much a place of settler culture and of difference, but it was also a place where the ripples of change were starting to be felt. This first visit started me on my journey into public art museums. It made me realize that there are many facets to a museum. Some of them are seen and others are unseen. Visiting the Art Museum, Cape Town, South Africa, 
1992. I loved the gentle rocking motion of the train, suburbs flashing by, the wind against my face, the thick, muted, elephant-like skin of the plastic sheets, secret messages doodled on the grey walls, the extra-wide, grimy windows I could push my body out through, the salty wind on my face, the freedom of being 17. Stepping out and onto the platform, into a subterraneous world of neon lights on shop fronts and emerging from the vertical escalator into the sharp, bright world above, moving towards the light, emerging from an underground train track burrow, rushing at bodies through throngs on Cape Town Station, the hub of city trains arriving and departing, the noise of people in motion, talking, rustling plastic shopping bags, buskers singing, traffic in the distance, the noise of a saxophone echoing through the underground. Emerging above ground, the fresh sea air, mountains reaching up to touch the sky, the too bright sunlight, walking up Adderley Street, looking up old buildings, beautiful curved windows and doors, brass nameplates and turreted roofs, the colonial traces in Africa of Little Britain, standing in between the glass and steel of younger, more uniform corporate cousins. The story of a European garden started Cape Town on its path to multiple settler occupations. The city with its fertile soil and hospitable climate was the location of a food garden for European ships en route to India and the spice route. From 1652, the classically organized garden I walked through formed the basis of a European presence in this part of Africa. I walk into the VOC company gardens and the avenue of oak trees planted by Dutch settlers. They create a dappled canopy above, shielding the African sun, past the buildings of parliament, speeding up past the white guards dressed in pith helmets, rifles, and razor-sharp trouser pleats, distracted by a homeless man talking to a squirrel, finally reaching my destination, the National Art Gallery, through the manicured French-style gardens, up wide, sun-warmed stone steps, through the imposing wooden doors and the carved friezes of Africans, surrounded by the bounty of local produce. The carvings in the art gallery tell a story of Cape Town as the promised land for white settlers. Black Africans, as well as my ancestors, the enslaved people captured along the spice route, are depicted as part of the bounty of the land of plenty. I first went to the National Gallery as a high school student. A new exhibition called Recent Acquisitions was causing some excitement in the Cape Town art community. It was a journey through the noise and bustle of the city into the cold, white calm of the museum. The contradiction was sharp. Cape Town was and is a place of contradictions, and so was the museum. The museum stood both inside and outside the city, both inside and outside the movement and chaos of the world. The contemporary art we came to see was mostly by white South African artists, and it was powerful. Work by Andres Boerter, Jane Alexander, Willy Bester, Penny Siopas, and William Kentridge jolted me into new ways of looking and understanding the world and into new possibilities. It made me feel unsure but excited. It was raw and transgressive. The unease of the exhibition mirrored the uncertainty throughout the country. Nelson Mandela was released in 1990, and we were still two years away from the 1994 election. The message of the exhibition was that we had reason to hope and that there were different times to come. 
But outside of the new exhibition, the rest of the museum was a glaring contradiction. Collections of pictures of horses, fox hunts, red coats, and beagles occupied the interleading hall. Portraits of British aristocrats who were either pink and plump or powdered pure white. The contrast between these collections was alarming. It was not only that the subject matter was different, it was that their messages rubbed up against each other violently, staking their claim over a space in profoundly different ways. A collection of art that celebrated aristocratic leisure pursuits, asserting their right to belong in this place, could not sit comfortably with a new collection that spoke of the quiet horror, absurdity and trauma of living in a police state. Meanwhile, surrounding the contradictory collections was the museum itself, always silent, cold and hushed, floors and surfaces gleaming, white people in lab coats disappearing behind closed doors and screens. The no entry signs signaled the hidden world behind the scenes. Despite the atmosphere of the museum, I knew this to be a place of secrets and intrigue, of the past, but also of possibility and of the future. It was the new collection that drew me back to the museum again and again. The story of a museum starts long before you arrive through its doors. A museum is not only about the collection it contains, the art on its walls, or even its institutional history. It is about you. A museum is a living entity. As you enter a museum, your story becomes its story. Your experience of a museum is about who you are and where you come from. Do the curators imagine a person like you coming to look at the art in this place, on its walls? How are you imagined, made visible, or ignored and silenced? Consider this. By apartheid, all public areas were segregated according to race. But the National Art Museum was one of the only spaces that was not reserved for white audiences. That meant that anybody, regardless of race, could visit. Why did this anomaly exist? Was it because that the state generously believed in the educational benefit of art, the enlightenment idea that art could uplift the spirit? Or was it more insidious? Did they believe in the civilizing function of art for the black and brown masses? Was it that racialized people could be dissuaded because of the proximity of the National Gallery to the government buildings of Parliament? Perhaps all these things played a role, but I think that it is because no racialized person would choose to spend time willingly in such an exclusionary bastion of white culture and privilege. There was no breaking the apartheid law because racialized people knew that the space was not meant for them. The museum space spoke to white visitors and racialized visitors differently. Why would you choose to visit a place that valorized pervasive and continued white privilege and that emphasized your difference? If art museums in colonial and apartheid South Africa were bastions of white culture, then where were the objects made by African people? And did African people make objects worthy and deserving to be displayed in an art museum? In the National Art Museum, traditional objects made by Africans were largely absent, but could be found across the company garden in the South African Museum of National History. In this museum, Black and Indigenous people were exhibited in glass cases as the first people and were placed alongside animals in a building dedicated to natural history. 
These are some of the reasons I have dedicated my professional life to museums and art and to peripheral voices in the museum. I am particularly interested in questions of agency in museums, of the voice museums speak with, of the voices they choose to silence and choose to ignore, of objects of art that are given space to speak inside museums and of those that are made to conform to the organizational structure of the space itself. And since my first visit to a museum so many years ago, I understand that what is hidden from the public eye gives insight into the way the museum speaks. About a year ago, as guest curator, I started working remotely with the Justin and Elizabeth Lang collection of African art at Agnes. Numbering 500 objects, this collection is extensive and ranks among Canada's most comprehensive. The collection is made up of works from West and Central Africa and mostly consists of what in Western museums would be considered sculptural three-dimensional objects. But coming to, into this project from South Africa, I had an understanding that these creations from Africa were not art in the way other European collections at Agnes are. They are integral to seeing the world in an expansive African way. These collections speak in ways that Western museums often struggle to comprehend and they are inadvertently silenced or hidden in the process. But because of COVID restrictions, I was not able to visit Agnes in Kingston yet, but I've been introduced to the collection by Jen Nickel, who has the important work of caring for these amazing collections. In the rest of this episode, we will go into the bowels of the hidden Agnes, find out about the voice of the museum and visit the African collection with Jen. Hi, Jen. Good morning, Kanita. Hello, how are you doing? Hi. I'm doing well. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you for joining me. So you have been overseeing the Agnes's permanent collection since 2007. That's right. And you've been the collections manager and you've coordinated um, exhibitions at Agnes. Yes. Could you tell me about the vaults? Why are they important? Give me an idea of the vaults. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is that they offer physical protection for the artworks. And we have um, two large vaults um, at the Agnes. They have great big high ceilings <laughs> and, um, and uh, high doors so that we can move artworks of any size in and out of the vaults. There is a lot of shelving in the vaults and we have racks that we hang paintings from. We have bins, we have drawers. The vaults are, to, to give that physical protection to the artworks, we keep them at a particular relative humidity and they are at consistent temperature. So they're at 50% relative humidity and we keep them at 20, 20 degrees, the environment that preserves many types of works and objects from, from deterioration. They're protected from light in the vaults. When there aren't people in the vaults, the lights are left off. Light is one of the agents of deterioration for artworks. 
mm-hmm. and it protects them from theft and fire. So those are the, the, the physical protections. But the vault also provides a secure space for researchers, Indigenous community members, curators and interns and practicum students to research and access our collections. It provides um, a safe space to process works when they come into the collection to examine them. And it also provides a secure space to house artworks that we've borrowed from other institutions. So those are some of some of the reasons why our vaults are important. So all the Agnes's collections are stored there when they are not on display. Is that correct? That's right, Kanita, yes. So how, how have they changed, Jen, since you started working there um, in terms of technology? Like how has that changed like over the years? There have been some significant projects that have happened since I've been working at the Agnes. Technological changes, but also changes in the way we have stored particular objects. So, for instance, we've been undertaking a long-term project to rehouse um, Indigenous ancestors. When I'm speaking about Indigenous ancestors, this is what has been referred to as objects or artifacts in Western museology. Uh We've removed the ancestors living at the Agnes from plastic bags. So in traditionally in museums, plastic bags have been smaller. Objects have been stored in plastic bags to protect them from pollutants and, and dust. But these are suffocating to the ancestors. So now we have wrap them in unbleached cotton that breathes. We've cushioned them better for support and for comfort. And that is the same sort of um, change that we've made with some of the African works that are stored in the vault to give them better cushioning and support. Some other upgrades, we have installed museum-grade high-density mobile shelving and drawers for our works on paper that keeps them better protected and and more accessible. We have added hanging racks for our paintings so that they are not stored in bins. We've also added shelving for our costume and upgraded our costume storage by making padded hangers that will better support garments and also we've improved their storage in their support in their storage boxes so there are a few changes that have happened since I've been there. What's so interesting is the way that ideas have changed surrounding art objects you know depending on what communities how communities respond to these objects and how you've had to, you know, make adjustments and expand your ideas of, of what it means to have these collections. I think it's, it's really amazing that you incorporate the white cloth because it now starts feeling more like an embalming process instead of, you know, just protection and care so that these objects can go on and be exhibited. I think that like what the vaults are becoming is is more of a home instead of a morgue. Do you think that is? Yes, yeah. yes, um, and it it makes me think of the objects having different needs and how how we're guided and learn about those needs. So, do you have connections with communities outside the museum? We are working 
and building those relationships with communities. We've started that work and outreach to communities to let them know that their ancestors are living at the Agnes and in letting them know that they're there providing access to their ancestors that live at the Agnes. And that starts the process of giving those ancestors proper traditional care. Yeah. And giving them a new voice in a new environment. So how do you see yourself in relation to caring for these objects? Maybe we should start with how did you choose to do this work? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I took a course in conservation and collections management. And my interest was I I'm really I'm fascinated by I'm fascinated by who made an object and and it's it's really neat that I have access and and can see the evidence of who made these the things in our vault and that there's a sort of connection to those creators through that object and I think, you know, to answer your question, I want to be an advocate for the objects and for their creators. And I want to make sure that the objects are accessible to their source communities, whatever those source communities may be. And that's something that can't, doesn't happen immediately. We do, we, we are working to make those connections and, and relationships. And certainly the the physical caretaker or one of the physical caretakers, I think that's a work that a number of us do at the Agnes. I'm also, I think, need to be a caretaker of the intellectual property related to artworks. And I'm fortunate to greet objects when they, they first enter the museum and, and the vaults. I handle them and I examine them. Part of my job is to examine a newly acquired work to determine its condition. So I see all parts of the objects, like the history of labels on the back of a painting. And that was highlighted by Paul Litherland in his B-Sides exhibition last year. Or the inside of a purse, um, maybe the interior finishing of a silk dress and the artist's inscriptions and notes painted or written on the back of a painting or drawing. So that's how I, I see myself. In, in relation to, to the objects in our vault. I think it's so amazing and so beautiful. And you, you're just so fortunate to see the interior spaces of things. I think, you know, cur- curators tell stories and they, they, they use objects to illustrate stories and their understanding of the world. But you work with the actual thing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Just it's it's just really beautiful, and I think I think it tells me something very special about your own voice and and how you communicate uh, quite quietly but strongly with the world. You know, since this podcast is about finding your voice through your practice, how do you think that your practice allows you to express your your own voice? I I I think that I I do that by ensuring that doing my best to ensure that the work and objects that are entrusted to us are as accessible as possible so that others are fortunate as 
I am so fortunate to have that, that special view and relationship so that others can be, have that same access. And that can be by providing really good images and information on our website, facilitating loans from our collection to other institutions, making artworks and works accessible to community and to researchers and students of Queens, facilitating traditional care of ancestors and ensuring there are spaces where community can smudge and provide traditional care. I want to care for artworks and and always respect artists' practices and wishes. So that could mean ensuring that a print is matted and protected with acid-free tissue, or it might mean allowing an artwork to naturally deteriorate, if that's the artist's intent for the work, or a community's intent for an ancestor. I want to make sure that I advocate for creators' rights, and in particular in my work, that is, includes their intellectual property rights, so right of reproduction, right to exhibit, and their moral rights. And then, you know, there are, there are maybe the, the taking steps to let source communities, this is, uh, this is so important, to let communities know their ancestors have been living at the Agnes. And there are many, many communities that, that need to know that and help it, helping them to, uh, to make that happen and, and nurturing good relations with those communities. And then there are the, the sort of, but important, in making sure that we move artwork safely and we keep good clean storage conditions and careful records of locations and that we train other staff to handle artwork safely and advocate for use of gloves, which keeps the artworks and the objects safe, but also keeps people safe and that we have good record keeping. I think it's wonderful. I think what I can hear from what you're saying is that as far as is possible, there is a commitment to open up a, a space that was like previously hidden, that was previously kind of just basement type space. Um, and, and, and I think it is the right place to start, is the right place to start opening up um, for all different communities and to kind of expand like a definition of what art is. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jane. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Kanita, for talking to me about this about and and like you said that's one of the first steps so it's been nice to be able to introduce our vaults this morning to you it's just so it's so inspiring to hear how um, definitions have expanded over the past 30 years totally different the vault was considered to be a glorified closet and the most important thing was to keep things intact and keep things preserved and then kind of take off all the wear or take off all the kind of patina and make it look bright and new and stuff. And it's just, it's really changed. That's that's what we're trying to do. And you're right, like vault, that word vault is like a crypt. 
that's yeah that's sort of what a vault means is is a place to to keep everything out other than what's supposed to be protected there Mm. maybe we need to stop calling it a vault I think that's really important because it is a place where there are precious objects and precious ancestors and all these precious things but vault just does not give that sense of care and community because it is it's, it's part of a community a different kind of community but it needs to we just need to use another word yeah you're right and and also just that you have like a very a very real sense of what it means to to be handling these objects and that they've just got so like such diverse histories and having to cater for for things from delicate purses to ancestors it's it's quite remarkable i'm trying to think of how we could refer to the vault to those areas to better express how we want to provide access and allow others to have the same relationship that I'm fortunate to have. I think it's it's got to do with just a space of slumbering, a place of sharing, a place of care. And, and I think the, the project of looking at the labels at the back of paintings and looking inside purses is so incredible. It's amazing. I wish I'd seen that exhibition. I'm just always interested in like the underside of things. And I think everybody is. Mm-hmm. It's and that 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 exhibition was specifically Paul had photographed the back of of paintings. Mm-hmm. And that's what was shown in the exhibition was the backside of of a painting because it it reveals the history and what that artwork whether it's a painting or or it's a a dress that has the evidence of somebody's dinner on it Mm. (laughs) right shows shows what's I think is one of the many important aspects of that object is what it's what it's gone through and lived through yes and and also evidence of human hands People touching it, being in the stream of humanity, that it, it wasn't ever made to be separate, to be isolated in an art museum or whatever, that it actually had meaning, like outside. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about it to Kanita. That's oh, a pleasure. The question about how my work gives me voice was, um, was a great question to ask me, and it gave me the opportunity to stop and think about it, <laughs> you know, because you get yeah. so concentrated on this sort of minutia and the, the, yeah. the logistics of, of your work. You. I mean, it's especially you. It's just, it's so, it's so big and it's so extensive and you're so busy doing so many things. Um, you know, like in your heart, why it is that you do what you do and why you love it. But mm-hmm. it's, you, often you just don't get the opportunity to actually think about it and, and, and speak about it. Yeah, um, I mean, when when I met you and when, when I went through the vaults and when I got a sense of the vaults, I just knew, you know, this is somebody who just, who who really loves like what she does and in a place where people wouldn't think to look, but it's so critically important. It's just such an important place. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting you and in the vault. Ah, <laughs> in yes. Those, in, that, in that, oh in the space. God. 
Oh, downstairs at the Agnes. Yeah. Oh, I cannot wait. I seriously can't wait. Um, but I'd, I'd love to spend time with him and with you in the vault. <laughs> Same here. Put it the listening to With Open Mouths, the podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Jen Nickel, for speaking with us today. The podcast is hosted by myself, Dr. Connie Talila, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Centre in partnership with Queen's University Campus Radio Station, CFRC 101.9 FM. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Elroy E3C Cox 3 Subscribe now so that you don't miss our next episode. You can find the podcast at Digital Agnes and on podcasting platforms like Apple, Google, and Spotify. We'll see you next time. They thought we would stay slaves. What chapter but this novel has